For nearly a decade, retail has been stuck in a quagmire of discounts, flagging consumer demand, and rounds of bankruptcies. There's been lots of discussion about what went wrong. Now the important question is, what do we need to do to fix it? While many will point to Amazon as the evil demon that devastated retail, a closer look shows that Amazon and other e-commerce players might have simply profited from the missteps that traditional retailers made. And is it only e-commerce that's to blame for the current situation in retail? Or are there other factors at play? I'm Jane Singer, and welcome to A Seat at the Table. Today I'm speaking with Kate Newland, founder of Kate Newland Consulting and author of two best-selling books, Shopportunity and Passion Brands. She's a specialist in working with Fortune 1000 companies to identify unmet consumer needs and then helping them to figure out how to fulfill them. Prior to starting her own business, Kate was president of Brain Reserve, a New York-based futurist marketing consulting firm. In this podcast, she'll share her views of where retail went wrong and what brands could do to get back on track. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, sure. I'm really, you know, like I said, I'm really excited to listen to your point of view and, and hear how you see things and where you see opportunities amidst, you know, what looks like mounting obstacles. Well, I think it's an escalation of the obstacles, right? Like it's been coming and COVID has uh, accelerated the demise. But I think as long as uh, retail, particularly apparel and soft goods, as you point out, um, as long as they went through the process of deprofessionalizing the sales staff uh, and trying to create bottom line growth through discounting, which is an irrational proposition on its face, but there you have it. Um, I think those, you can only look at the recent bankruptcies, let's say by recent the last 15 years, uh, to see that retail has lost its way. And so then comes COVID, which makes it uh, a fraught experience to actually go into a store if you can. And then, of course, there's the rise of Amazon and online retail, uh, that knows how to deliver the goods, uh, but without light, without advice, without mentoring, without that human to human, and we've learned to live without it because first the stores stopped providing it, uh, and then Amazon learned quite quickly that you didn't need to provide it. I mean, if you've ever had a problem with an Amazon order and you've tried to reach out to anybody there, you know it's a dehumanized environment, uh, but it works. And if we're going to live in a dehumanized retail sector, why not work with an algorithm rather than a person who'd really, really rather be on her cell phone than advising you about uh, which bra to buy your daughter? So what you're saying is that we started out with a deterioration of in-store customer service, which made it very easy to segue into online because people weren't getting service in stores, so therefore they didn't miss it when they were shopping online. Exactly. I mean, if you if you think back to all of the the brands, the major department stores around the country, or the small boutiques, they were all run by human beings, right? They, if you just think of the names of those stores, the Sholatos, the Lazarus, the Elder Bermans, the Wanamakers, they were all run by humans and then by families. And little by little, they got acquired based on a calculus that said we can do away with 
localized assessments, buyers who understand the local needs. Uh, we can have just an uh, automaton who says, okay, we're going to buy XYZ Tommy Hilfiger jackets and we're going to make them available at XYZ cost. And because we're such a huge source of revenue for the, the various apparel makers, uh, we can negotiate a great price and that's all that matters. I wrote a book called Shopportunity in, I want to say, the late aughts and talked about this in detail, what happens when you don't put value in, you just take price out of the equation, cost out of the equation, and it commodifies everything. Um, so, right. you know, it's just a tragedy that there's no, there's no, in the ideal world, and, and you see stores like Nordstrom now trying to create this through avatars, um, but somebody who's going to know you, know your sizes, know your your needs, know your preferences, and then call you up and say, you know, we just I just bought this. We've got three of them, and shall I put one away for you so you can try it on when you come into town? That kind of service, granular, personal, was what built those stores, and they got it got hedged out of the system. Right, right. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of what you touched upon in your book? You referred to in your book how retail became commoditized. Well, the basic proposition is that it's a snake eating its own tail, right? Like you have to create demand at a price and then supply it at a price. And the difference between those two prices become your operating margin. And what happens is by creating a demand at a price, what you're doing is it's an addiction, right? You're selling things that people do not need and do not understand, and you don't have the time to explain to them other than it's on page 72 of Vogue, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's no explanation, there's no ed edification of why the buttonholes are cut and why that costs more. There's no, there's no clarification of quality markers. So no understanding of why one thing costs more than another. And what happens is you you lose quality uh, because it's no longer uh, a marker of meaning. And people get the juice off of, off of buying something, acquiring something, and then they, know they don't treasure it. They don't understand it. So then they either sell it, uh, give it away to Goodwill, or, and, or it goes into a storage facility. And you're making stuff that people do not need, nor do they understand it. But they get the, that frisson of excitement through acquisition. So that's what I mean by this, you know, the snake eating its own tail. They only get it through the acquisition, through buying something. So you come up with words like shopping therapy mm. um, and a way of soothing ourselves through the acquisition of goods, which, which no longer carry meaning other than through the acquisition. Well, if you think about going through the process of buying something new, if there's nobody at the store to help you, you wander aimlessly. There's just so many proof points of why this has no meaning. We've done a great deal of work at my company in the, in the world of, I think of it as regression, of taking people back into their first, their most powerful, their most meaningful experience in a category, and then their first, most powerful, most recent experience with a brand. And what you find with that first and most powerful are the promises, right? The, the walking into a department store with your mother and being confused and but strangely elated 
by by the offerings, by just the sheer abundance of everything. And then your most recent experience is this horror show that conventional retail has become, where it's just one sign after another saying 30% off, 40% off. If you have a Macy's card, it's it's 60% off. Well, you know, like like it's it's all of that uh, disappointment, the loss of the kind of triumphal meaning of, of acquiring something that you really care about. Right. Well, I think that, you know, that's a very good point, because if you look at those people who are selling not at a discount, which tends to be the smartphones and smart watches and things in, in those categories, they're doing exactly what you said, which is selling on value. Um, and then, you know, when you look at apparel, for example, primarily it's selling, like you say, on that treasure hunt for getting a deal. Um, and all that does is just carve costs endlessly out of the system. The quality markers erode. Uh, you can go online right now and look up Ralph Lauren polo shirts and you can find them for $19.95, And if you really look, you might find one for $129.95 direct from Ralph Lauren. But if you don't teach people that there's a difference, we're not born knowing it, right? Like right. We're not, we don't come with an understanding of threads and materials and care instructions and colors and dialogue, you know, like, like this isn't our job as consumers, but it is the job of a retailer or a manufacturer, a brand to say to us, yes, you can get it for 1995, but it's three years old and, and it's a bright yellow. And here is the version that we're proffering now. And here's why it is worth 99.95. But, you know, like uh, without that, you'd feel like a dunce for spending ninety nine ninety five for something that you go, that you think you're getting the same for nineteen ninety five. And the and the brands participate in this. They make different versions at different price points and allow it to erode the brand and its meaning, you know, for short term goals to, to hit marks, to get a bonus. So do you feel that in a sense that retail has become so focused on driving the top line that they don't care what happens to the product in between? Yes, and I think they're focused on the bottom line as well, which is why they car- constantly carve costs out of the system that would mediate the problems, that would mm. address the issues of not understanding. But because they don't want to have a professional sales force, you can walk into any retailer and you know that by and large, let's say 95% of the time, these are people that could have gone to work at Best Buy or could have gone to work at uh, McDonald's but found you, right? Uh, found this retailer, and it is—it's a, a minimum wage job with no, with very little training, uh, with very little understanding. Well, you know, it's interesting because when we sometimes we do our own surveys through our Inside Fashion Consumer Lab, and consistently mm-hmm. people complain about quality. Um, consistently, mm-hmm. people when they talk about quality, they're specifically referring to fit, um, to fabric. To workmanship, and yet on the other hand, when we talk to retailers and manufacturers, they say, "Well, the consumer does not care about quality. The consumer only cares about if it's the newest thing and price. So, therefore, if you charge more, people aren't going to pay it. So, you know, you're sort of caught between the consumer feeling like 
what they're getting isn't very good quality. It doesn't really, you know, they're, they're not getting that level of satisfaction. And then the retailer or the brand saying, well, nobody's going to pay more. So why should we do something better? I mean, how do you, how do you see those two? You have to test. In other words, you can prove it. I can, I can prove it intellectually. Mm. I can prove it strategically. But until the brand or the retailer sees that if you educate people onto the, onto the quality and understand, okay, this 1999 version of this product is going to pull. It isn't going to hold its fit, but it's 1995. However, this version at 49.95 is made this way with this kind of fit. If you deign to educate them, A, you improve their quality understanding. For sure, they'd be making the trade-off. They'd say, okay, I only want to spend $19.95 for this shirt, but I understand that it's not going to last for a year and a half or it's not going to fit the way it does on the mannequin, but that's my choice. But on the other hand, if I buy the $49.95 version, then it lasts forever. It looks great. You know, like you give them the, I want to call it, the dignity of an informed choice Mm. rather than simply making that choice for them. You're an idiot and all you'll do is ever spend 1995. So that's all we're going to do. All we're going to tell you about. You know, that's very interesting that you're the first person who's ever brought that point up in the vast number of people I've spoken to about this. And I I think that that's a very interesting approach to, to, explain to people and like you said don't take away the cheaper one because you could potentially lose customers but explain to them why here's one that's more expensive and what you're going to get if you do spend that money what you get what accrues to you in that interaction is an essential trust that benefits the store as well as the brand because over time, like right now, I go in and you tell me, well, there's a 1995, there's a 39, there's a 59. And I think, well, sure, you're going to want to sell me the 5995, the 49.95 one, because, because why? You'll make more money on it. Okay. There's a suspicion. There's a cynicism. There's a, we've been treated badly by retailers and by brands. But if I, if I take the time and my salesperson actually knows the difference and can speak to it, see, that takes training, that takes education, that takes all sorts of things and can be honest with the, the customer. They may opt for the 1995 one this time, but the next time they'll go back and find that sales rep and they'll trust what she's telling them. And that is how you'd begin the turnaround of this erosion of trust, this incredible cynicism and this sense of, you know, I don't trust anybody, but I do understand the North Star of price. That's a given Okay. Mm. I can relate to that. I can measure against that uh, because I don't trust anybody else. In order to return to a, a meaningful retail experience, you'd have to have trust. And that has to be relearned and then reapplied on the part of the retailer. Now, maybe in COVID, maybe there's, a, there's an opportunity as all of, these, all of these retail footprints begin to contract, then perhaps some powerful, strong, thoughtful retailer will say, we're going to retrain the surviving salespeople uh, and we're going to relook at our compensation model and we're going we're gonna to think about having a footprint that matters and people that understand our customers matter and that their lives are worth more than the lowest common denominator of cheap, okay, available, and cheap uh, because that, is, that game is over. That's been won by Amazon. 
and if you if you want to go into a store, then it's one by Target and Walmart. You know, like okay, available and cheap. That spot is taken. So now, what's left? And we've been forced to learn. You know, I can't tell you how many people I know that you know maybe used Amazon for commodities, for paper towels and things, uh, but suddenly started buying yoga pants from it. Uh, you know, like because we couldn't go out. There's been a forced experiencing of the Amazon proposition, and it's it's not a particularly flawed one, right? Like if all you want is the goods day after tomorrow, and sometimes today, it'll it'll get you there, right? Uh, so so what's left? What what space is open? And and then how how would a conventional retailer figure out how to actually provide some level of service? and then educate people to want it. But do you think, I mean, you know, when we're just talking hypothetically here, um, Mm -hmm. that given the fact that most of the major brands and retailers are either publicly held or they're owned by private equity, and therefore they're having to live by quarterly results, and as we all know, I mean, to change anything takes, we're probably looking more like 18 months rather than three months. Is it yeah. even feasible or, or is it going to be that they need a longer timeline than what the market is willing to give them to achieve this kind of a change? Yes, I, th- I think that's exactly what's needed. And, may- and maybe, frankly, maybe it comes from an entrepreneurial startup rather than trying to resuscitate old brands. They're just too in debt to have the flex but you're going to see, like we have many test cases in play, many hypotheses being tested in real time. One is startup. I watch the Simon Properties mall people right. um, who are who are buying up these old brands like Pennies and all of those and saying, okay, well, we can run them better. And I think what hypothesis gives them that belief other than fear, right? right. Like they're petrified that all the anchor stores go away. Uh, and there's no reason to go to a mall. And so rather <laughs> rather than reimagine their real estate in a post retail world, they're buying these brands up. But again, that's a that's a test case, right? That's a that's a hypothesis uh that somehow somebody who's not a retailer but is a real estate entity can reimagine retail in order to pay itself rent. Right. Um I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because on the one hand, they have this seamless control. And on the other hand, of course, they have no, they have no recourse. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very risky proposition. If they get it right, it, it could be tremendously profitable for them. And if it doesn't work out, it, it could be disastrous. You know, I, I, I agree, except I don't see the tremendously profitable side of the equation. I, you know, like, I mean, if you think the PowerPoint presentation through which they convinced themselves to do this, right, has <laughs> got to have in it that somehow pennies under their stewardship as real estate people who own retail malls is going to somehow be actualized and compelling consumers at a time when people don't particularly want to go into malls mm. in a way that pennies could never have figured out on their own. I mean, that is the hypothesis, right? Right, right. We can do it better. Now, and if we do it better, we're either going to char- pick our own pockets, charge our pennies money uh, to have these locations, and because we have pennies, we can induce other retailers to return to the mall. But it's, you know, if they had done this, Five years ago, it would be interesting, uh, but doing it in the state in the in the world of COVID is, I think, 
the has the ring of desperation that we all kind of think, right? Like, what's their alternative? They're backed into a corner. Well, that's yeah. true. I mean, I think that it's unfortunate that all of these things came together at this point in time. Um, yeah. But, I mean, back to your point. But the one was coming. The COVID, we didn't know. Right, you know, right. A year ago. But the rest of this. Yeah, we saw that coming. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're public companies, so there's very few secrets. But I, well, I think and, there, and we, are, we have our own experience, right? We go into a Penny's and all you can see, or a Macy's or a, any, any of these folks, all you see is the signs that say 30% off, 40% off, 50% off, shouting at you as you walk in. I mean, just in terms of the visual presentation, you would be an idiot for paying full price for anything. That's what they taught us. Yes. And and now that's come home to roost because you can't, if the equity markets dry up and pension markets dry up and say, well, we're not going to actually invest in a retail hypothesis anymore, then where does the next wave of money come from? It's not going to come from the consumer. We've already educated them never to pay full price. I think you're right that people have been educated, myself included, that you're an idiot if you pay for anything full price because if you just wait a bit, it's going to be marked down. For sure. And, and you know, there's the new arrival sign and there's the 40% off sign. They pretty much are everywhere on all things all the time. Yes. Plus you have all the economic uncertainty. That's true. There's a tremendous amount of insecurity, uh, financial health, political, uh, on and on and on. So we're, we're in, I think, a real stutter and... And it would take real, real leadership at, at a, you know, and a tough love uh, that says not just we're going to you know, negotiate more harshly with our vendors and get even better discounts on our goods, but something that says, you know, we're going to test this proposition and we're going to give it enough runway to actually happen in in the midst of all of this. I mean, I would hate to do the regression analysis on <laughs> on. All of the variables right. uh, that are in play right now. I mean, do you, you know, you're talking about being able to bring through this kind of change with retail and, um, you know, a move towards more quality and, and, and so forth. Do you feel that these indie brands, the direct-to-consumer brands or the smaller brands are going to be in a position to make that happen because they have more flexibility? Yeah, I do. I, I think... It depends on where their funding has come from and how patient those folks are, right? Um, because nobody's doing it with their own money. Right. So it's it's that uh, calculus, right? It's like, here's our proposition. We're really, really, really going to educate the consumer to understand the vagaries of quality, the implications of price. Um, we're going to let them know where we're manufactured and how and who's doing it. We're going to encourage them to buy for not three weeks, not six weeks, not eight weeks, but we're going to encourage them to buy goods that will last, uh, that they'll actually hang in their closet and, and rely on uh, because they're, they're well-made. That's um, idiotic on its face, right? Because we need to feed the beast. We need, <laughs> we need to keep selling. We need to turn. Right. Uh, the idea that people would actually keep well-made products uh, is, a, is probably a cultural reality that's coming, but no conventionally raised retailer is going to be able to deal with that. In a sense, Apple sort of was the one who carved out that model because at a time when there was lots and lots of, they weren't really smartphones at the time, but they were cell phones, Apple came forward and took a very high price position 
but built massive quality into the product. So in a sense, they're sort of, I guess, a test case. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a proposition. Now, we see what happens when somebody from Apple stores goes to pennies, right? Like, mm. like it's too much of a culture shock right. uh, for retail to accept. And for consumers who have been educated and taught for, for three generations uh, that price is the variable that matters uh, to accept. You know, the, the, the fuse wasn't long enough. When I wrote Shopportunity, I, I interviewed this guy from Procter & Gamble who gave me this fabulous quote, which, you know, was both scary and true at the same time. <laughs> One generation of marketers has addicted three generations of consumers to the heroin of price promotion. Mm, very well put. Yes. And it really is the truth. And how you get consumers to kick that habit uh, is is a tough case. Right, right. And I think the thing with um, Ron Johnson going from Apple to JCPenney was probably too big of a leap. I mean, I think that perhaps some of the changes that he was trying to implement might have been more successful at a store that was already at a higher, you know, serving a higher price point. I think yeah. going all the way to the other end of the spectrum might have been asking too much in too short an amount. Of, you know, maybe that just was not the right market for moving the needle. You know, you've got multiple cultures, right? Like you've got the culture, you've got the consumer culture, but you also have Penny's culture. Mm. Uh, and you have a guy coming out of Apple culture. And and these are crosswinds. These definitely were. There was a Penny's culture that didn't want to have been wrong mm. but all the way up to now. Good you know? point. Um, so they, they there, there are ways, as I'm sure you know and have experienced, there are ways to to make sure good ideas don't work yes. if they're not yours. This is true. Yeah. And and it's easy enough. And then you reject the antibody, right? You reject the, the incoming strange thing. And now we're back to business as usual, which is a comfort zone, uh, but it isn't how you actually save a retail brand. Now, oftentimes, you know, when we're, when we're talking to retailers, um, you know, we, I mean, getting back to your, your point about the way to... to get out of this discounting and to be able to provide better quality for people, which they would pay more for, you know, the sort of the linchpin in there is the salesperson who's able to explain this to the consumer. And yet people will argue right now that, well, today's consumer, particularly millennials, do not want to shop in stores. They simply want to buy online. So how do you Mm -hmm. respond to that? How do you, how do you see that working out? Well, I think it's true. Like I, I look at my own daughter and she likes to go to down to Soho and shop. But when she buys, most times she's buying online. So you can say, well, one hypothesis is to use these as retail showcases uh, for millennials because they do want to get out of the house. They do want to go look at the goods, much like a car showroom, and then buy and have it buy there or have it shipped directly to them or buy online. You know, like it's. You, could, you should be agnostic about that. But I think that that also offers the opportunity to say, all right, she's in the showroom. She's touching the goods. If I could manage to have somebody friendly and trained talk to her about the hem and why it's sewn this way and why this is a better quality than something down the street at Brandy Melville for a third the cost, it's a huge opportunity. I think retail tends to look at things in one dimension. 
you know, because they need that for PowerPoint presentations to investors and pension funds, right? They need clarity, succinctness, and logic. But consumers are illogical. They are paradoxical, and they do learn. So the idea of being able to educate them and create loyalty rather than transactional price loyalty is is where margin is, right? That that never discussed aspect to the balance sheet. That's that's where margin lives, is in loyalty that you don't have to buy. And they just refuse to acknowledge that consumers behave this way because of this reality, but the minute you change the reality, they will behave differently. We're not just acted upon, we're acting. Like it's a, it should be a relationship built on trust, and it just isn't, and that's why it defaults to price. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, and I think that's that's really sums it up very clearly as to sort of the the missing link. We don't respect the consumer. This is true. We think she's an idiot who will buy the cheapest goods at the cheapest price, and we want to be the ones to get there first. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. I definitely think that people feel that the consumer, like you said, is an idiot, and yet we're all consumers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's not like it's a separate, distinct group of people. It's us, too. (laughs) It is us. (laughs) And if we paid attention to what we feel when we walk into those stores, we'd know a lot and we'd behave differently. You know, um, before I ran my own company, I was president of Safe Popcorn's organization, right, the uh, Brain Reserve. And she used to tell me this story of how she learned positioning And it was because her grandfather ran what was called at the time on the Lower East Side a haberdashery, right, like um, a clothing store. And if he'd make a window display, and if people didn't come in to check out the goods, he'd go reposition the window display so that they it was evocative enough to get people to come in. It's that aspect to it. It says, wait a minute, if I'm not offering something that people want to come in for, maybe I should refigure it, rejugger it. It's just, you know, we say, no, no, make it cheaper. That'll do it. Put a for sale sign up. But, but we're losing, you know, we're losing the, the idea of presenting items of value that people will value, that they want. Yeah, I think that's very, I think that's very true. I mean, I think that people, I I think that the people who are making these decisions are very far away from the customer and therefore don't really understand that customer because they've never met that customer. They've never seen that customer. They see them more as data on on a spreadsheet as opposed to a human being. Yeah, and a a tremendously, data does, does lovely things and it makes things obvious that maybe aren't true. Mm. And, and I think that that is the the deficit in in our retail world. We we take a snapshot. We say, oh, this is true. This is how consumers behave, and we forget that consumers are people, and people are notoriously illogical and behaving on women caprice. And that's part of the joy of being human. Right. right? We don't want to be a data point. Any thesis that we make up about all these data points is, by its nature, has to be reductionistic and therefore never allows, you know, for the, su- the surprise and delight of I went in for a new dress, but then 
I pressed the wrong elevator button, and I ended up in the China section, and I bought these wonderful glasses, you know? The impulse buy, right? The the impulse buy that's really driven most of retail. Which is the joy, which is the discovery, which is the, the lucky I've been looking for these forever, and here they were. Then that's what you talk about, not... This was this was in the circular, and it was six for twenty nine ninety five. Well, I think, like you said earlier, it's going to be the new brands that are coming in without this legacy that have a chance mm-hmm. to start from scratch. That would be my hope. We see um, local entrepreneurs. You know, if the goal is to become incredibly wealthy, then you start from a position of, I'm going to create this, I'm going to show that it works, and I'm going to sell it to Walmart, or I'm going to sell it to whomever, and I'll have an employment contract for three years, and then I get to go, but I'll I'll be in a gated community playing golf because I'll be filthy rich. If the goal is to figure out a better mousetrap, be a person who puts meaning into the culture through, through products and their acquisition, then you behave differently. And I would say that Wanamaker's you know, any of these old, all these old line department stores were created differently. Great retailers wanted to purvey great products to great people using great people. There was a family aspect to it that wasn't based on up and down and over with, but is, was based on a renewable resource, which is we know how to get you great goods and merchandise that maybe you didn't even know you needed. And then when you saw it, you said, oh, my God, I have to have that. And then could you afford it? It became the second. So what do you think led to their demise then? I think they got greedy, borrowing money to expand. And now we see all those expansions, right, (laughs) Um, contracting. But I think the idea was that conventional wisdom was bigger is better. We need to be in every mall. It's not just enough to be at Herald Square. We need to be uh, throughout the country. And I think the kind of money that that takes is not self-funding. So you immediately go to the markets and you start getting either by taking yourself public or by making endless presentations to pension funds, um, you get investments and those investments need a return. And retail is not set up for that just by its nature. It's not make more widgets and sell more widgets as a you know, it's, it's oh my gosh, we, we bet on this look and it didn't happen. Or we thought this was going to be a big thing, but it didn't take. Or we didn't order enough of these. It became a fast-selling item. It's material because it's based perfectly on consumer desire. And we tried to switch that into forcing desire, lust, you know. Um, so I think that overextension, which is now... 14 names of organizations later is now having to contract because we didn't deliver something that people really wanted to leave home for, even before COVID. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to take COVID out of the equation because that's sort of an extraordinary yeah. situation. And like you said, a lot an of this is... Yeah, it's an accelerator. Create the problem. Yeah, yeah, the problem has been going. I mean, these companies have been in and out of bankruptcy for many years prior to this pandemic. Yeah. And for all the... All the reasons we've talked about. And yet they're they're enabled to get out of bankruptcy, even though the odds of them getting back to where, you know, they, they sort of should be is somewhat of a long shot. Well, I think what happens 
you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I think what happens is there's a smooth-talking devil professional who can sell ice to Eskimos, right? Like, you can sell, so you've got a professional class, which could be selling widgets, could could be selling pharma, could be selling, but they are selling retail brand names. And they're creating a sale, a case that is very compelling and they're good old boys and they'll smoke a cigar and have too many bourbons with you or take you to the golf club and introduce you around. And it's a very seductive proposition mm. to people who run funds, right? Like it's a, it, it's something else going on than how do we make sure that the Armani suits that we have on offer can be tailored uh, the same day by our, our alteration staff because you need the dress tonight. You know, they're not, they're not engaged in those kinds of discussions. They're engaged in we can negotiate because we've got the buying cloud of, of a thousand different pulse points. We can, we can tell Tommy and tell DK and Ryan and tell these people that they have to bring the, these products in at this price for us. And on that, on the strength of that, we command X number of people to come in. And oh, by the way, uh, they don't even have to come in. Uh, they can buy to our online site. Um, and we've got a robust omnichannel presence and blah, 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 right? Like we've got all the, and we're going to have a, you know, a ski lift in our parking lot. Uh, so that kids can take a ride. And we're going, you know, like it's all that, oh my gosh, really? That's, we've been reading about edutainment, and here it is. How cool is that? Uh, retail teamment, oh my gosh, here it is. Here's the future. We just need a little bit more time and a little bit more money. So there's a, there's a selling of a proposition untethered to human reality, but that seems to make sense right. enough uh, for the next yeah, I think I think that's true because you know you look at these companies; they keep going into bankruptcy, and then somebody else buys them, and you wonder why they think they can do better with it. But I guess maybe everybody thinks they can do better than the guy before them. Well, I think no. I think frankly, I think what they think is they can do no worse. And but if their investment is low enough, in other words, you buying at remainder prices, something goes belly up. You can buy it for a song. You're installed. You know, unless you're also having to acquire the debt, but even then, you come in fresh, you get, you settle the debt pennies on the dollar, you screw other people, and now your nut is lower. You don't have to do anything remarkably differently because you've changed the underlying calculus. So then they do it some more. Right, right, right. So the key thing is that they're able to wash out that debt. And find new, dumber people to invest with. Right. Well, it'll be very interesting to see as we come out of this pandemic, as some of these indie brands, you know, start to proliferate, and I think more and more seem to be coming online, um, whether, I mean, online, not just not just in e-commerce, but, you know, you see yeah, yeah. retail popping up all over the place with small store here, small store there that somebody's decided to open. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to these brands that most of whom have gone through a bankruptcy again. Yeah, you know, like like the legacy may not be sufficient in fresh thinking, fresh ideas uh, may be required. It's a, it's a heartbreaking moment, I think. Well, that's just it. I think it's going to be interesting because we've gone through a phase of globalization, right? Starting with luxury brands, of course. And then after that, mid-tier brands started to also move into international markets and others came into, you know, so they, they went into each other's markets and 
now we're seeing all these unique and um, you know independent brands starting to come up. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It, I mean, it really will be because it is a it's a test of so much. It's a it's an experiment of so much of how we see ourselves. How we want to be seen. How do we meet the corroboration of of a brand mark that's known and, and lionized? Right. I mean, before I think that a big brand was a sign of trust to a consumer where you mm-hmm. would you would feel a confidence that you were buying from this brand. So you would trust the quality um, of what you were getting. You would assume that there was someone behind it. Um, and that was sort of the trade-off from going into perhaps a smaller shop. But now I'm, I'm surprised that even with this pandemic, how many announcements I see coming up you know, on the one hand, we're hearing about massive numbers of stores being closed by by big brands. And yet, on the other hand, if you add up these individual guys, it's a lot, you know, but you don't see them because it's one by one by one. And then and then you see, and you know, like this is what I mean, like this is a living lab we're in now, right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> because there are people who care deeply. I mean, you know, like it's it's the difference between a chef and a celebrity chef, right? Like it's uh, it's it's if you really really care about the goods and you want the people you want to know your customers and you want to get them what they need and that they'll look great in uh, and feel great in that's its own model of of joy. Right, right. But if what you really want is to mass produce that feeling and and grow and have a brand that extends ocean to ocean and beyond. Then you're going to reduce the thrill, the privacy, you know, the, the I know you and I thought that you'd like this thrill in order to homogenize it. I can thrill the most people the most often. But then there's a whole group of people, and I would, I would say that current retail leadership is, is who these folks mostly are, who simply are, they're not thinking about the joy, the thrill, the luck, any of those things. And they're thinking about how can I get the share of wallet uh, I want I want her money, and I want more of it than anybody else gets. So it becomes a, a competitive, uh, and I think joyless uh, experience. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I think it's become you know depersonalized in many ways. Wow, very interesting. So where can we find your book? Um, there are two books. One's called Shopportunity from HarperCollins. Okay. And the other one is called Passion Brands, and that was published by Prometheus. Wow, wonderful. Uh, they sound like must-reads. I'm certainly looking forward to reading them, and I think a lot of people who are listening to our podcast um, would be very interested as well. I think there's a lot of valuable information, and you know, it's more relevant now than ever before. Perfect. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. What's your biggest supply chain challenge? Please let us know in the comments section. If you enjoyed this episode of A Seat at the Table, please subscribe to our podcast, where you'll get to hear from some of the industry's leaders and innovators. And if you're looking for an easier way to keep up to date on sourcing shifts, new technologies, supply chain strategies, emerging markets, and of course, e-commerce, head on over to our website, InsideFashionLive.net, and consider subscribing to our weekly newsletters. You'll also find all of our contact information there. Please feel free to contact us with any ideas, suggestions, or questions. That's InsideFashionLive.net. 